Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good morning, congregation. Good morning, podgregation. That is kind of a hard word to say. Glad you are all here, whether you are in person or online. My name is Emily Morrison. I am on the communications team here on staff. And I'm super excited to be here uh, coming up on almost two years into our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And you know, at first I thought, man, we're taking so long because Jesus has so much to say. And then I realized, no, we're taking so long because Greg has so much to say. (laughs) So I'm going to chip in my two cents here as well. So today we're going to talk about what I personally consider to be the most radical part of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I bet if I took a poll of this room and said, what's the craziest, most wild thing Jesus ever said? You would probably say, love your enemies. And I would say, yeah, that one is, that one is a doozy. That one is tough. But I don't think that's the hardest one. I think the hardest one is the one we're going to talk about today, which is when Jesus says, do not worry about your life. And the reason that one is so hard for me, there's a personal reason, and that's because I've struggled with an anxiety disorder for over half my life. And anxiety, it's hard to explain sometimes, but it it feels like this to me. It feels like, have you ever accidentally swallowed a piece of hard candy and it just gets stuck right here in your sternum? Anxiety is like that, except it gets stuck in your gut and it just won't dissolve. Or anxiety feels like falling over a cliff, and as you're falling, you're grabbing at branches, and they just keep breaking off in your hands. And so this passage is really meaningful to me. There's a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And so this morning is kind of going to be A Person with Anxiety Looks at Matthew chapter 6. And before we look at the verses, I want to say something important up front. If you experience anxiety or someone you love experiences anxiety, this passage is not a rebuke to you. This passage is not meant to shame you. I know some of us have heard this as, what's wrong with you? You don't trust Jesus. You don't pray enough. You don't believe enough. But guess what? That's not what Jesus is saying. People with anxiety, he wasn't at a conference for people with anxiety disorders. He's not rebuking you. And if you have mental health issues, there is no shame in that, zero shame. If you need medication, if you need therapy, that is okay. In fact, I encourage you to get those things. I have medication and it makes a world of difference for me. Okay, so with that being said, let's look at our verse this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grafts of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? 
Oh dear. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. When I hear that, my gut reaction is something like this. Okay, Jesus, I I got a question for you. Have you ever been to planet Earth? Do you know how hard it is to live here? Because when I hear this, you feel really out of touch with the life experience. To me, you feel like a hippie, like skipping through meadows, singing songs. And I'm trying to picture, how on earth could I live worry-free? We've got war and a pandemic and economies collapsing. We've got climate disaster. We've got racial injustice. And, and there's things like dinosaurs that we have to worry about. Dinosaurs are so scary. I've seen Jurassic Park. But I, I want to share some good news on the dinosaur front with you just before I keep going. I, I read this article uh, a couple months ago, and it was really exciting. See, scientists used to wonder, you know, how fast could a T-Rex move? And uh, the thing is that when they first measured that, they were looking at its hip height and its kind of mass and stuff. And so they thought it could move pretty fast. Well, then they figured out we need to factor in the T-Rex tail and the way that it kind of does the balance of the body. So if you see this picture, that red part, that's the part of its tail, the vertical motion. And it actually kind of slows it down. So T-Rexes move at three miles per hour, roughly. You know what? We can outrun them. In fact, we can walk faster than a T-Rex, and I think that is good news. I was, telling this to, um, I was telling this to my housemate, and he was giving me such a hard time. He was like, oh, okay, so you're going to sleep better at night? And I, I paused, and I thought, oh my goodness, I actually am. Like, I, I worry about everything, and subconsciously I was worrying about how I was going to outrun a T-Rex, and now I don't feel so afraid. But Jesus doesn't say, don't worry about the dinosaurs which, okay, maybe that's reasonable. He says, don't worry about what you will eat or drink or wear, which honestly doesn't seem reasonable to me. And it's hard to know what to make of this passage. And I, I personally, I've seen God's care and provision for me. He's just wonderful in the way that he has provided for me. And I've seen miracles in my life, but I've seen more than that. And I feel conflicted with passages like this. I feel conflicted when I read Proverbs chapter 10, verse 3, which says, The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. Well, that, that sounds encouraging, right? But I've seen righteous people go hungry. I've seen it. And what about the Bible's most famous psalm? Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Other translations say, I lack nothing, I have all that I need. But we know David's story, right? David was on the run. He was hiding in caves. We know he was hungry. We know he was thirsty. How on earth could he say that? Then Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 19, This same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Awesome! Paul's God is the same God who's going to take care of me. He's going to supply all my needs. And then I flip over, and I'm reading 2 Corinthians here, and he says, uh, 
I have been hungry and thirsty. I have gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me. I don't want this God. I, is this God taking care of me? What do we do? Your father knows what you need, and we have times of need. What do we do? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and I want. What do I need when God supplies all my needs, but I have needs? Paul is hungry and thirsty and cold, not to mention the shipwrecks and the prison and the beating. And Jesus knows this as well. He says in this very passage, the wildflowers are going to (laughs) burn. In another passage, he talks about Birds falling to the ground. You know the average lifespan of a sparrow is three years? That's all. But Jesus says, I want you to look at them and I want you to be like them. They don't worry. Don't worry. Okay, so I'm not going to leave you there. I want to give you three things that when I bring my anxiety to these passages that I see, that I understand what it means to not worry about tomorrow. And the first one is this, that life is more than this life. That's the thing Jesus says right up front in verse 25. He asks, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? What if Jesus is saying that we don't need to worry about those things because those things don't ultimately matter? Those things aren't the stuff of life. Wait, 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 wait. Food and clothing is the stuff of life. Water, we need those things every day. Yeah, it is. It's the stuff of this life, but it's not the stuff of eternal life. From a zoomed-out eternal perspective, our lives are a vapor, a, a shadow, a wave in the sea. Second Corinthians tells us that our troubles right now are light and momentary, and there is an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So is this really callous? Is Jesus saying, man, I'm super sorry, it's really cold today and you don't have a winter coat and no socks and man, sucks for you, but it doesn't matter because eternity is fine. No, that's not it at all. Because we look at Jesus' ministry and he spent hours and hours taking care of people. He saw people and he saw their suffering and he felt compassion and then he did something about it. He fed people and he healed people. One example is in John chapter 6 when Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish and he feeds over 5,000 people. In fact, he gave them so much food, there were leftovers. This is what Oshida was talking about a couple Sundays ago is that the abundance of God, the enoughness of God. Then look in the same chapter, John chapter 6 verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He points at himself and says, here's what satisfies. I do. I do. You're going to eat, and you're going to be hungry again. You're going to drink, and you're going to be thirsty again. But I will never run out. You're not going to run out of me. There's enough of me. He tells this to the woman at the well. Hey, if you drink this water, you're going to be thirsty again, but I am the living water. So in this same exact passage, Jesus feeds people. He feeds them actual bread, and then he also tells them, I am the bread of life. There are two realities going on here, and Jesus cares about both of them. But life is more than this life. 
If all we can see is this life in front of us, if all we can see is this world and its worries and its concerns, if the world to us is food and clothing, then Jesus says we're just pagans. We're missing out on an entire reality. We can't see the big picture. We're seeing not the, the whole reality. Reality does hurt. Evil, evil will knock you down and then you try to get up and it'll sucker punch you and it really hurts. That's not a joke. That's not uh, imaginary pain. But it's not the only real. Paul says in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. If this world is all there is, if our treasures are our money, our possessions, our clothing, the physical stuff, then we're going to worry about these things. But if this world is not all there is, we're going to worry about other things. We're going to worry about Jesus and worry about Jesus and following him. Now, I want to say that it's easy for me to talk about this probably because uh, the other day I took one of those, uh, you can go on these websites on the internet and, and find out how your income stacks up in relation to the rest of the world. And I found out, it's, it's eye-opening, and um, I am in the top 15% of the world's wealth. That means I'm richer than 85% of people on this planet, because thank you for my wonderful paycheck, Mary. Thank you. <laughs> and so it could be easy for me to stand up here and say, you guys don't have to worry. And maybe I don't have the lived authority for that. So I want to share some words from some sisters and brothers in Christ who do have that. Um, A number of years ago, I lived in South Sudan for three months, and I was living with a group of refugees from Darfur, and it was such a privilege. They were new believers, and they just um, showed me so much what it is to follow Jesus through suffering and persecution. They had lived through war. Um, Some of them had been imprisoned, uh, tortured. They had been in refugee camps, and yet they were following Jesus, and uh, they just had incredible words for us. So my last night in South Sudan, they had kind of a a farewell send-off for for me and my teammate who I was with. And this is what one of the brothers said. He said, man, my sisters, don't worry about your life. Preach the gospel. We will live in God's kingdom forever. This time is temporary. Don't be amazed if you hear that we are persecuted or that some of us have died. This is normal because we are following Jesus. That brother knows that life is more than this life. And it doesn't mean that those refugees were never afraid. One of the women told me that she often had nightmares. She'd wake up in the night um, afraid that when she went back to her family, her parents would kill her or they'd call in soldiers and the soldiers would kill her. And she, would, she told me, I don't, how am I going to talk about Jesus? And then she said, but I remember that verse. There's a verse that says, do not fear those who kill the body. And she said, then my heart becomes strong because she knew that life is more than this life. There was a widow I met there. She had seven daughters and, and she was telling me a story about uh, time. She was nine months pregnant, and it was during one of the wars, and she was fleeing from rebels on foot. They had to go about 35 miles, and they didn't have water to drink. And she said, Emily, 
it rained and we were able to drink from the puddles on the road and God provided for us. And then she told me her, her husband died and it was so hard for her. She'd be out in the fields working and it, everything would just become too much. And she said, I would put down my hoe and I would go under a tree and I would praise God and he would give me the strength to work. Because her strength came from somewhere else. She knew that life is more than this life. And I feel like if any group of people I've met had the right to laugh at scriptures like Matthew 6, to be fearful, to doubt God, to think this is ridiculous, it's that group of people who'd been through war and hunger and poverty and prison and torture. But they saw a life beyond what we can see. So number one, life is more than this life. We understand this world is pain in light of eternity. We hold the tension of two worlds that are equally real. The second thing I see here is that the family of Jesus cares for one another. Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So the fundamental part of living the kingdom is to love then loving is taking care of one another. When Jesus sought first the kingdom, he took care of people. So think about this. How many people would feel the need to worry if we took care of each other? If the church made sure that everybody had enough? Because like Oshida said a couple weeks ago, God is a God of abundance and generosity and extravagance. I think in his creation, God is whimsical and excessive and elaborate, and I believe he made enough for all of us. But because of evil forces, because of the powers and principalities, and because we are selfish and greedy, we've created a world of scarcity. We've created a world where there isn't enough. We have 7.8 billion people on this planet, and about 800 million of them go to bed hungry at night because they don't have enough food to eat. But economists have found out that if we changed the way we managed our resources, we would have enough, as we are now, to feed 7.8 billion people. Not only that, we have enough resources in our current world to feed 10 billion people. God is not a God of scarcity. We've created the world of scarcity, but Jesus is an abundant, abundant God. So when Jesus was in our scarce world, how did he respond? He was generous and compassionate. And so he says, be generous as your heavenly father is generous. Be extravagant as your heavenly father is extravagant. Give freely as he gives freely. Look at the, look at the early church. I love Acts chapter 4 verse 34 that says, there were no needy among them. If we took the teachings of Jesus seriously, we would cover each other's needs. We wouldn't have to worry because if I don't have enough food, someone in the church will give me food. If you don't have a coat, I'll give you my extra coat. You know, the things of Jesus only sound far-fetched until we start doing them. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. My needs rarely, if ever, are met in a private exchange between me and Jesus. The ways he has met me have always been through someone else in the body. 
Because as always, when Jesus is sharing all this, he's thinking of community in mind. He's seeing the family. If we are the church that Jesus envisions, we are a church that is family. We take care of each other. A number of years ago, I was going through a really tough time, and I um, was talking to a friend of mine, and I said, you know, it just feels like I'm walking through Mordor, which is the evil land in Lord of the Rings. And I said, it feels dark and bleak and, and rocky and sandy and hot and, and as far as I can see, and we're all trudging in this line, single file, and when I break away from the crowd and I look, it's, it's just more of that. Why don't we all just jump off a cliff? This is terrible. And she looked at me and she goes, Emily, that's awful. That's a terrible picture of life. And I was like, can you do better? And um, so she was like, yeah, here's my picture of life. She said, Life is something like this. Life is a changing landscape. There are rocky deserts, and there are steep hills, and there are endless plains, but there's also forests, and there's green grass, and there's beautiful lakes. And we're not trudging in a line. We're walking together. We're holding each other's hands, and we're helping each other up those hills and across those rivers and through all the hard parts. That's how we get through it. We're holding each other's hands said, okay, your picture wins. (laughs) That's better than mine. And I think it was so beautiful because I think she imagined the kind of world that Jesus imagines. I can say to you, don't worry, I've got your back because we're holding each other's hands. So number one, life is more than this life. Number two, the family of Jesus takes care of each other. And number three, the lens to look at this passage is that God gives us what we need most, which is himself. If you hear nothing else this, this morning, this is the thing. This is the thing that we have Jesus. That when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, your father knows what you need. He knows that we need Jesus. So even though I joked at the beginning about wanting to grab Jesus and say, do you know what it's like to be human? It's terrible down here. The thing is, He has the authority to say these things precisely because he does know what it's like to be human. He was the one person who walked this earth experiencing both the depths of grief and sorrow and knowing the joy of eternity. He is God and he's one of us, which makes me think he's the only person that can say such an outrageous thing. Isaiah tells us that our Savior is a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. Hebrews tells us we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Life is scary. Life is hard. It's a special kind of hard when you're prone to anxiety. But Jesus made us a promise that we don't need to be afraid. Why? Why is that? Because he's with us. He didn't promise us that we'd have it easy. He didn't promise us things are going to go great for you. He didn't promise us like this hymn I used to sing when I was a kid, that there'd never be a cloud in the sky. He didn't say that we wouldn't go hungry or never be without a home or not experience violence because Jesus experienced hunger and homelessness and violence. God's promise was himself. So when he says, your father knows what you need, the father knows that we need him. And that is the promise. That is the guarantee that we get. 
We have the abundance of Jesus, the enoughness of him. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is our living water. Jesus is our shelter and our refuge. Jesus, only Jesus. Jesus says, are you not much more valuable than the birds? Yes, we are. So valuable that God gave us his son to be with us. Why could David say, I lack nothing? Because the shepherd was with him. So when an anxious person reads this passage, what does she see? She sees the grief of this world where flowers burn and birds die and people go hungry. But she sees Jesus who says, there's more to life. Come, do not be afraid. I am with you. This morning I want to end with a story of how I experienced Jesus giving himself for me when I needed him most, of how Jesus' presence broke through the fear in a way that was stronger than my circumstances. So a number of years ago, uh, I was all set to move to my dream location and my dream job. Um, It wasn't Minnesota, I'm very sorry to say. Y'all are lovely, but I had other plans for my life. And it was the culmination of years of, of work and preparation and prayer, and I felt like God was taking me to this place, and, and I was so excited. It was like, this is the thing I'm going to do with my life. And um, I, I moved, and I got there, and I had a severe mental breakdown, and I had to say goodbye to that dream And it was heartbreaking. I fell apart. I was in the worst shape of my life after that. And I felt furious because I felt like God had betrayed me. I felt like, this is your idea. I followed you and you let me down. I went out on a limb for you and that limb just broke right underneath me. I can't believe you did that to me. I felt like like he just disappeared. He was nowhere in sight. And I was trying to pick up the pieces of my life after this all by myself. I was trying to make sense of this and and tell myself how it felt. It felt kind of like um, this, this analogy. I imagined myself in my bedroom one night, and I I hear a little, like, plink, 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 and someone's throwing pebbles at my window. And so I I go to my my window, and I I open it up, and I look out, and and there's Jesus. Like, hey, Jesus, what's going on? He's like, hey. And he's got some spray paint. He kind of shakes the can. He's like, you want to go tag the town with me? And I'm like okay, sure, it's Jesus, like, why not? So I, like, come outside, we get our spray paint, we're having a grand old time, he's, like, showing me cool things you can do, and then I hear, like, whoop, 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 and there's headlights, and the police cars pull up, and I've got paint on my hands, there's paint cans on the ground, and I'm, like, oh, my goodness, I'm not getting out of this one, and I look to my side, and Jesus is gone. Like, he just took off running. He is nowhere in sight. And I told God in my journal when I was, I wrote this story out in my journal, and I told God, you left me to take the fall alone, to deal with this mess. You ditched me with hurt and loss and disappointment and without a job. Did you realize that you were leaving me? When you ran around that corner, did you know my heartbreak? And for years after that, I just felt like I couldn't trust God. I I felt like he was just about to pull the rug out from underneath me. And over time, he showed me, Emily, I'm not like that. But he really put the final nail in that coffin, in the coffin of that image last summer. 
So last summer was hot, the, the joy of Minnesota. We get to be very cold and very hot. And one of the things I, I would do if I had extra time was um, I would get cases of water or maybe like rehydration packets, rehydration drinks, and go out on the streets and give out water bottles. Um, sometimes I went to protest sites um, and I would bring drinks there uh, to drop off for people who were holding space in different parts of the city. And so uh, one day I went to a, a vigil site. There was, um, last June, there was a, a man named Winston Smith who was killed by law enforcement, and there had been protesters after that, and um, a, a car rammed into the crowd and killed a woman named Diana Marie. Um, just tragic, um, both of their deaths. And so there was a memorial for her, and there was a, a vigil site. And so I had gone to her vigil, and then the next day I thought, oh, there's people gathering there. I'll bring some drinks for them. And um, I got there, and next to the candles and the flowers, there was kind of like a little donation site. And so I had a, a case of Gatorade, <clears throat> and I set it down on the ground. And then I got up, and right when I had gotten there, um, some police officers had come, and th there were barricades there. People had put them up to prevent more drivers from coming into the crowd, and, um, but also to draw attention to what they were trying to protest. And so I saw the police over there. They were all the way on the other end of the block, and I kind of just looked at them, and then I saw people running towards me, and I realized the police were just kind of uh, coming through the street, and I thought, oh my goodness, I gotta get out of here. I don't wanna be here at all. And so I turned this direction to get away, and what I hadn't realized was that the police had, were kettling us. They had, they had surrounded the area, kind of made a net. And so when I turned this way, I got a few steps running, and there were police officers coming at me this direction, and they were yelling at me, you're under arrest, you're under arrest, get down, put your hands up. And I was like, oh my goodness, I can't get out of here. And so I started to put my hands up, and this officer came and just threw me on the ground. Um, I was lying on the ground, he just shoved me again, and I was absolutely terrified. I mean, I'm a white woman, the police never treat me like that. And so I was just, I was just lying on the ground, like, scared. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was alone. Nobody else knew I was there. And I felt so trapped. And... Um, I didn't know what was going to happen that night. I was taken to the county jail, and then I was released later on. And uh, one of the fun parts of my anxiety is that I can have anxiety-induced seizures. So sure enough, that night I had a rip-roaring seizure. And then for nights after that, I just had these terrible nightmares, and I was jumpy on, on edge, and any time I saw a police car, my whole body would tense up, and I was just drowning in anxiety again. And um, a few days after that, I was driving in my car, and I was listening to the song, No Longer Slaves, which we sang this morning, which we didn't plan that. That's a little thing called the Holy Spirit. And um, I, I heard those words, I am surrounded by the arms of a father. I am surrounded by songs of deliverance. And as I heard that, this picture came into my mind, and I saw myself back at the memorial, and I saw myself from behind, and I could see my hands in the zip ties, and I look and there's someone standing next to me, and I look and I realize, hey, that's Jesus. And then I look closer, Jesus has his hands in zip ties too, and he's looking down at me. And uh, then I see these, you know in autumn when a wind, wind catches like a gust of leaves, and they kind of do this cool swirly thing? There were like these swirls of 
translucent flames, um, like blues and purples and pinks and oranges, just all around me and Jesus. And the police officers were kind of these blue blurs, like they weren't even in the picture hardly. And I felt like the Holy Spirit said, these are the songs of deliverance that are surrounding you. And then across from Jesus and I, all of a sudden I see on this wall in giant letters, in graffiti, it says solidarity. And Jesus goes, I'm in solidarity with you, Emily. And I just felt so much peace. After that, I I did a series of uh, imaginative prayer exercises and it totally changed the whole situation. It's not like I went in a time machine and went back to the site and like, no, not, that night didn't happen. Like that, that afternoon did, did still happen. I was zip-tied so tightly that I had nerve damage in my wrists for, for months. And so when I was having this picture of Jesus, I still had that pain in my wrists. None of, none of the actual physical circumstances had changed. But when Jesus gave me that picture, it was like... I went from having a zoomed-in camera to like a wide-angle lens, and I could see Jesus every moment there with me. I had not been alone. I was not alone. And I wasn't alone now anymore with my nightmares and my seizures. So rarely have I felt so close and so loved by Jesus. And to comfort myself for weeks after, sometimes I would just lay in bed, and I would I would close my eyes and I'd just rest my cheek and I'd picture myself lying on the concrete with my, with my cheek pressed against the cement, my hands behind my back. And I would picture Jesus and he's lying there and his cheek is on the sidewalk and his hands are behind his back and he's just looking in my eyes and I would just be like, oh, I'm okay, I'm okay, Jesus is with me. The significance of that solidarity graffiti also really hit me because... In that vision that Jesus gave me, I felt like he was taking a sledgehammer to my old idea of him. In my imaginary graffiti scenario from years before, I was using this lens of Jesus where I thought he was the kind of person who ran away when the cops came. That he left me with the mess. That he disappeared when I needed him that he took off around the corner and he didn't care what happened to me. But in reality, as that graffiti said, Jesus was in solidarity with me. He was in reality with me that whole time and every time in my life. He was in the mess with me, so much in the mess that he wasn't just a spectator who happened to be at the scene, he was in handcuffs with me. Jesus doesn't run away. He stays with us. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to worry. The Father does know what we need. He knows that life is more than food and clothing, that life is Jesus. That life is not worrying about tomorrow because we are following Jesus and he's walking with us. I'm a whole being. I need medication and I need therapy, but you know what my heart needed so much for all those years? My heart needed to know that Jesus is with me. I have found the one who transcends my anxiety because I have Jesus 
and Jesus is enough. Amen. The Heidelberg Catechism says it like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? My one comfort is that I could probably outrun a T-Rex if it was still around. Okay, no, no, I'm sorry, that we, that's, no, that wasn't the one. Let me try again. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Oh, praise God. Uh, Okay, so I have a few announcements for y'all. MuseCast is on Tuesday. There's no way to make a good segue. Sorry. (laughs) MuseCast is on YouTube on Tuesdays at 4 p.m. There's also a MuseCast podcast, so that's really exciting. Uh, We've got gathering groups, which are a great way to uh, discuss the sermon, connect with people. You can find those um, online. If you need prayer, there is prayer here in the building, but you can also go online, whchurch.org slash Sunday dash prayer. And lastly, uh, if you have kiddos and you're planning on, on being here, please uh, make sure you save a spot for them. You can find all this information, whchurch.org bulletin. So, my sisters and brothers, family of Christ, may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Go in peace. Woo!